Welcome everyone to week number two of our How To Fall series. This is the second in our seven week series on how to fill in the blank. So tonight we're addressing how to answer hard questions. We have a special guest, Eric Hernandez, joining us this evening. But if this is your first E&E training, I'd love to introduce myself. And I, my name is Ali Carr, and I'm the Director of Special Projects at International Commission. I've been with IC for just under three years now, and I'm the host for E&E trainings. I also help with marketing, our special events, our fundraisers. So if you want to reach out to me personally, I would love to hear from you. If you have any feedback, have any questions or suggestions for future E&Es, feel free to email me at allison.car at ic-world.org. For those of you, this is your first E&E training. This is your first introduction to International Commission. I welcome you. I'm so excited that you're here with us tonight. Our mission at International Commission is equipping and enabling believers worldwide to conduct church-based evangelism projects so that we can reach unbelievers and make disciples. So the E and E in E and E training stands for those first two words in our mission statement. Our goal is to equip and enable you to share the gospel wherever you are. And we exist to help teach you with tools and just various ways that you can craft and share your story, um, share the testimony in a concise and simple manner. So we're so thankful that you're here with us this evening to learn just how to do that. In addition to our ENE trainings, we have several other resources through our organization. We have the ENE show, which is more of a um, Q&A style with a special guest, and you can find that on YouTube. We also have a special storytelling with purpose evangelism toolkit that's a free download on our website. So as I just mentioned, we have various tools, videos, PDF guides that will help you learn how to share your faith in various ways. If you want to watch any of our past e, &E trainings, you can find that on, on our Vimeo page. You can head to vimeo.com, type in International Commission, and you can find all of our past trainings there. And finally, a lot of people don't know this, but we've had a book out for several years now, and that book is available on Amazon. If you like to hear stories from the mission field and just crazy ways of how God is working in and around the world, then this book, Global God is for you. You'll hear powerful testimonies of trip participants and staff from International Commission share their story of how they've seen God work around the world. As we begin tonight, I don't want to assume anyone here is super familiar with specific Bible verses or um, the gospel in general. I don't know where you are with your walk with the Lord, but we always like to remind people of three things. So first is Simply, what is the gospel? A very simple verse that many people are familiar with is John 3, 16. And the gospel means good news. And the good news is that God loved the world so much that he sent his one and only son. And whoever believes in him, believes in Jesus, he will be saved and he will have everlasting life. So that is the good news that we want to proclaim to everyone. And that is our role, which is um, question number two. What is our role with the gospel? Before Jesus left earth, he gave us this mandate, this great commission, and he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So with that commission, he has commissioned all of us as followers of Christ to go and make disciples of all nations. 
the nations have come to us if you're living in the United States. I know many people join these ANA trainings from all around the world. So wherever you are, God has called us to share the gospel and make disciples. And finally, how should we share this gospel? In 1 Timothy 3.15, it says that you should always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you for the hope that you have. And be sure to do this with gentleness and respect. So those are the key words here to share the gospel with gentleness and respect. And I bet Eric tonight is going to show us exactly how to do that because you all have submitted some pretty tough questions for him. So he's going to teach us how to answer those tough questions that come our way, but also how to do that with gentleness and respect. And he's even going to answer some of the questions that you submitted when you registered for this. And if any questions arise throughout the remainder of this training, feel free to put it in the chat and we'll see how many we can get to before the end of this hour. But without any further ado, I know Eric has a lot to share with us and he is very excited to be here. So I want to welcome Eric Hernandez. He is a dynamic evangelist and apologist with a heart for proclaiming the gospel and defending the faith on theological and philosophical grounds. He's a licensed minister, certified formation therapist, Denison Forum Advisory Board member, and is the apologetics lead and millennial specialist at the Baptist General Convention of Texas. He has spoken and debated on public level at university college campuses where he adamantly and adequately defends the Christian faith against atheists, agnostics, and deist professors who hold different worldviews. He holds an associate degree in social science, a bachelor's degree in theology, and a certificate in apologetics from Biola University. So Eric, you have quite a resume that you bring to the table here. I can't think of anyone better to teach on this topic of how to answer hard questions of the faith. And like I said, many of you submitted your hard questions. And so he is going to teach us tonight how to receive these hard questions, how to formulate an answer and respond to that person with gentleness and respect. So Eric, thank you so much for being here with us this evening. And I would love for you to take it away. Thank you. Yeah. And uh, yeah, let's, let's jump in and get started. Um, let me share my screen here. And uh, so as a disclaimer, uh, two things. One, um, I, I do have ADHD, so I naturally talk fast. And two, it is being recorded. So I, I feel a little more comfortable going through this kind of fast so I can, we can allow more time for questions and you can always go back and uh, a rewatch or if you missed a slide or two. Um, also, uh, thank you very much, uh, Ali, for hosting this, for having this International Commission. Uh, it's it's great to be partnered with you guys. And also everyone who, some familiar faces I see, I see a couple of Reasonable Faith chapters, some friends, some other apologists, and most importantly, someone who I would not be here if it weren't for them, and that is my mother, uh, because she gave birth to me, Julia Hernandez. Great to see you, mom. My number one supporter there. So let's go ahead and uh, jump in. <clears throat> um, so what is our goal? So when, we, when we're reaching the lost and evangelizing to people, really the goal is obviously to, to see them come to Christ. Uh, and in Colossians 4, 5 through 6, it reads, conduct yourself with wisdom in your interactions with outsiders, which are non-believers, and make the most of each opportunity, treating it as something special, and let your speech be at all times uh, let it be gracious and pleasant, seasoned with salt, so you know how to answer each person. Now, there's lots of wisdom in here, but I just want to highlight a few things. One, it says conduct yourself with wisdom in your interactions. And then two points that we're going to focus on, one is making the most of each opportunity, and then knowing how to answer. So 
we could say that there are two tasks provided to us in Colossians 4, 5 through 6. The first being making the most use of our time. And the second being knowing how to answer as opposed to what to answer. And let's briefly unpack these. So in the first task, um, we want to keep the main thing the main thing. Uh, and I'm just kind of building a foundation for this. And this is going to look at what I've heard called theological triage. So <clears throat> here, to put it into perspective, suppose you're talking to a non-believer and you have about one hour until Christ comes back. You know that Christ is returning in one hour and you have a non-believer before you. And let's say there's a few things you can talk about. You can talk about evolution versus creation. You can talk about the age of the earth. Uh, you can talk about biblical inerrancy. Or you can talk about the fact that God exists and rose Jesus from the dead. So here's my question. Which one of those four topics are essential for salvation? Obviously, the latter. Now, that's not to say that the other topics are not important. There's great discussions to be had here. Uh, but, but this, again, theological triage, this, this really came evident to me uh, at one of our conferences that we had with Texas Baptists. I put together three annual conferences. Uh, I'll briefly share more about that later. But one, one lady uh, during the Q&A session said, I have a friend who's so close to coming to Christ, but they just can't give up their belief in evolution or age of the earth. And she said, what should I do? And my response, again, without going into detail, was simply let them have it. Uh, again, this is not to say that, um, the other, that those other points aren't important. Let me, let me briefly unpack what, what triage is. Suppose someone is rushed into the emergency room and they have three different, um, three different things that need addressing. They have a broken wrist, they have a scraped knee, and they have a gunshot wound to the chest. Which one of those would the doctor immediately uh, tend to? Obviously, the gunshot wound to the chest. That's not to say that we're going to let the person live with a scraped knee or broken wrist, but the point is we have to first save their life if we want to keep working. In the same way, in principle, I would highly recommend and suggest that when you're talking to someone who is not saved, before we can worry about discipleship or anything like that, we first have to see them come to the cross. So when the lady asked this question, my response was, let her have it. Because let me put it this way. Everyone here, I guarantee, is going to go into the afterlife with some false theological beliefs. There are going to be some beliefs that when you get to heaven, you're going to realize you were wrong about. But the point is, guess what? You're going to find this out in heaven. So I said, if we're all going to go into the afterlife with some false theological beliefs, then why not help someone go to heaven with false theological beliefs than go to hell with false theological beliefs? So again, while there's a lot more I can say, we think of it as theological triage, and we want to keep the main thing the main thing. Um, I'm in the process of, of writing a book for Texas Baptists on witnessing to non-believers, and I'll go much more in depth than that, but suffice it to say, even Jesus avoided some getting into some debates, even with something as important as biblical inerrancy. Um, we can talk about that later if you'd like, but he really just always got to the point of what he was trying to say. Now, the second task is knowing how to answer everyone. And again, we're just laying a foundation here. <clears throat> now, again, this is a, an important distinction. Paul specifically says know how to answer, and he doesn't say know what to answer, and there's a difference. So as an example, Suppose someone approached you and said, have you stopped beating your wife? Yes or no. Now, note, if you said yes, you have stopped beating your wife, then you are implicitly conceding that while you're no longer engaging in domestic violence, you used to. Now, if you said no to the, to uh, no, I have not stopped beating my wife, then you're saying that you are 
not only have you previously beat your wife, but you're continuing to do it. The point is, it's not important to know what to answer, yes or no, but rather how to answer. In other words, not only will I not answer yes or no to a question such as this, rather than give a direct answer to the question, I will actually question the question. So for example, rather than, than say yes or no, the question would be perhaps, why would you assume that I beat my wife? In other words, not all questions merit direct responses. So if, if a person is trying to look for what to answer to every question, then I would say they're already starting off on the wrong foot because sometimes it's not about, uh, I'd say most of the time, it's not about what to answer, but more so how to answer. And this is exactly what's being stressed here in Colossians, how, not what. Um, so again, you could say, why would you assume I have a wife? Or you can say, as one, uh, one young man said, when I posed this question to their youth group, he said, wife, I don't even have a girlfriend. Um, so, and we are praying for those that are single in the body. Uh, so knowing how, not what. Now, what I'm going to briefly introduce you to is something I've called the lazy approach, which again, I've uh, I unpacked more in the book that I'm writing. Keep me in your prayers for that. And basically, there are some tools and tactics uh, that I'm going to share. I'm going to just going to share four with you, which pretty much covers, there may be one or two extra, but this is going to cover the majority. So let's jump in. Um, tool number one would be using questions. And what's important here, and as some of you might know, some of these may overlap with uh, Greg Kokel's book, Tactics, which is a highly, highly recommended book. Um, two powerful questions that he recommends in the book is, what do you mean by that? And how did you come to that conclusion? And this does a number of things when you ask these questions. First, it, it keeps you from getting into some kind of a heated debate. And more so, here's what they do. One, it clarifies that you understand the other person's position. Because the last thing you want to do is talk past the other person and waste 10 to 15 minutes arguing a point that the other person does not hold and vice versa. Um, again, remember those two tasks, make the most use of our time and know how to answer. Also, what this does is asking a question can implicitly make a point. And I will show you some examples shortly. And it serves sometimes as an implicit response. So with this in mind, Remember that this is going to keep the conversation cordial and the pressure is going to be off you. So let's look at some examples. In Mark chapter 12, 13 through 17, let me first say Jesus was brilliant at asking questions and, and utilize a lot of these tools and tactics. If I had time, we could literally spend hours on each one. But in Mark 12, 13 through 17, they approach Jesus as they normally would, and they want to trap him, right? They, they want to set him up so that the answer that he provides is going to either get him in trouble with the authorities or get him in trouble with the people who follow him. And the question is, should we pay taxes to Caesar? And of course, this is where every American pays close attention when they read this first. Uh, but note his answer. He, he doesn't give a direct yes or no. Instead, he answers a question with a question. And with this, he's going to implicitly make a point. So what does Jesus say? He says, well, bring me a coin, and he asks the question, whose image is on the coin? Now, again, without going too deep, uh, because, again, we could talk for hours about this, here's what he's essentially saying. <clears throat> if, Caesar's, if Caesar's image excuse me, is on the coin, then this tells us a few things. One, it tells us, it, it points us to the kingdom that we live in. So the, the fact that Caesar's image is on this coin, it tells us that we live in Caesar's kingdom, and because his image is on the coin, this means that this coin belongs to him. 
So Jesus's response at that point is, well, then give to Caesar what Caesar's. But now here's the implicit question that he does not outright state, but is strongly implied, and they would have understood what he was getting at. Uh, we have to understand that when we're reading these things, for, for the writers back then, it, to, to make a point as strong as possible, the best way to do it is not to outright state the point, but to make the other person come to the point on their own conclusion. Let me, as a side note, here's a, here's a freebie fun fact. So for example, someone might say, well, Jesus never claims to be God. Aside from, aside from that being technically incorrect, what you do find, again, keeping in mind how they would have written, you find Jesus making the point in a much stronger way. So for example, you have someone who needs healing, and they tell Jesus, well, you can't heal, it's the Sabbath. And then he says, he asks a question, as usual. He says, well, what's harder to do, to heal someone or to forgive their sins? And they respond, of course, well, obviously, the harder of the two is to forgive sins, because only God can do that. And he says, yep, you're right. And then he turns away from them and looks at the person that needs healing and says, you're healed. And by the way, your sins are forgiven. And then it just abruptly stops right there and goes on to the next story. So again, the way they made points was, was again, implicit. That was for them the strongest way to make it. So again, going back to the coin, whose image is on the coin? Well, whosever's image is, that means we live in that person's kingdom and this belongs to them. So the next question that would have popped into their mind is, well, whose image is on you? Because if Caesar's image on a coin means it belongs to him, and it means we live in his kingdom, then if God's image is on you, then it means that over all the other kingdoms, we live in God's kingdom, and you should give yourself to him. So again, with a question, he makes an implicit point. Um, another example, <clears throat> um, I've, I've done many debates and, and, and conversations, probably over 30 by now, and that's, that's not to brag. And in fact, I, I encourage some people not to participate in debates because I, I think it's something that God has to call you to. And I'm not saying I'm the best, but for whatever reason, I keep getting invitations to do them. Um, in one such case, I was on a college campus, a secular college campus, and we were talking about abortion. And I let students ask me questions afterwards. One student had the following question. He said, he started by saying, look, I'm against abortion. However, if we don't allow abortion to be legal, then women could harm themselves trying to get illegal abortions. So while I agree with you that abortion is wrong, what would you say to the fact that women can harm themselves if we make it illegal? So what I did was I used a question to do almost everything that we, we discussed to clarify his position, but then to implicitly make a point. And here was, I said, well, before I answer your question, let me ask you this. Are you essentially telling me that if we don't legally allow women to kill their children, they might hurt themselves trying to kill their children illegally? Is this what you're asking? And he said, huh, you make a good point. I guess you're right. And I said, well, I haven't made a point. I just asked you a question to clarify your position. Because if that's your question, if that's your position, then that helps me answer it. So I, in other words, I didn't even have to give a response. I asked a clarifying question and rewarded his position. <clears throat> now, I, I, I further though, I said, but I do want to respond. And here's where I rewarded his position, also ending with the question, where I took the principle of what he said and applied it to a different scenario. Um, because the point is, if you, the principle of your argument is this, and if he, I apply the principle to another, uh, uh, another situation, 
But if you disagree with that situation and the principle, then you should disagree with the principle for your situation as well. So I said, let me, let me ask you this. If I could show you statistics that, sh that uh, showed how people who broke into homes to either steal or you know, rob someone or murder someone, if I could show you the statistics that showed us how many burglars or murderers get harmed trying to break into homes, whether they jump over fences or break through the window, if I can show you how many burglars are harmed, would you be willing to say, well, then we must make burglary legal? Otherwise, if it remains illegal, then people trying to break into homes would be harmed. I said, would you agree with an argument? And his response in his own words was no, because the only reason they're doing that is to harm other people. And I said, well, that's exactly my point. So again, all I've done so far was ask questions. Um, what about when you're engaging with an atheist or skeptic? Uh, to make the long story short, I was talking with a young lady and again, lots I, I'd love to touch on, but I would also say, try and be the first one to ask questions. And especially if you know the other person's position. Now she was a professed atheist and the traditional definition of an atheist is someone who believes God does not exist. So here's what she said. She said, I'm an atheist and I can only believe things that are backed up by evidence. Now, what you're going to note is my response was I use what she told me, her own words, and I use it to formulate a question. And my question was, and what evidence do you have for believing that God does not exist? So it's a fair question. You're appropriately placing the burden of proof on the other person's position. Now, when you use questions, you can expose the problem with what they're saying, their question or claim in a clear but respectful way. So here was her response to my question, what evidence, again, According to her, she can only believe things that are backed up by evidence. So the question was, what evidence do you have for believing that God does not exist? Her first response was, the Bible is full of contradictions. Let me ask you, does that answer the question of why she's an atheist? Well, no, it doesn't. So I said, well, I said, I'm, I'm not sure how that would prove there's no God. Uh, and I said, so let me ask you a question to see if I understand you correctly. Uh, just to, to understand where you're coming from. I said, if God exists, would he have existed prior to the Bible being written down? And her response was, well, yes, but I don't believe in God. And I said, well, I understand that, but just bear with me here. If God exists, would he have existed prior to the Bible? And she said, well, yes, if he exists. I said, okay. So if God existed prior to the Bible, then how does a Bible full of alleged contradictions make him disappear or cease to exist? What, what am I missing here? In other words, even if I grant what you're saying is true, how does that prove that there's no God? Now, I could have responded by jumping into a defense of the Bible, but my time, I literally only spoke with her for 10 minutes or less. My point was to get at the heart of the issue, her lack of belief in God. And the reason that she gave me for not believing in God does not justify her belief that there is no God. So my only point here was to point out, this doesn't prove there's no God. And it was with the question, how does this, how would this prove atheism is true? Um, again, we can talk more about that later. And then she said, well, okay, I don't believe in God because there's no evidence. Now, remember, the position that, I, that she is supposed to defend here is God does not exist. So her, her justification was there's no evidence. And I said, well, uh, again, I must be missing something. And here's why. I currently have no evidence. I don't have any evidence that there is a flea in this room. But can I conclude from that that therefore there is no flea? Well, no, because there could be a flea in this room. I just don't have the evidence for it. In other words, 
even if I don't have evidence for a position, it doesn't mean that therefore the position is not true. So claiming there's no evidence does not prove there's no God. And with each of these, when I would ask these, when I would end by saying, how does this prove there's no God? 99 times out of 10, and I made that on purpose, that uh, problem there, 99 times out of 10, my, the response I get from the other person is silence because they're not used to being challenged on these claims that they're making that have no relevance to the question. Instead, they're used to Christians jumping into defense mode and then the argument starts, but she hasn't given me anything so far. So there's no need for me to engage in any kind of debate. I still want to know why does she believe there's no God? Um, one time one person said, well, I don't believe in fairy tales. And my response was, well, great, me neither. And I just kind of sat there for a few seconds in silence. And they said, well, yes, you do. You believe in talking snakes. And I said, well, I assume you're referring to Genesis and it, it says talking serpent, but, but we can go with snake. And I said, but let me ask you this. If God existed, could he allow a serpent to talk? And again, the person said, well, yes, but I don't believe in God. And I said, I understand that. But if God existed, could he allow a serpent to talk? And they said, well, yes, if he existed. And I said, okay, great. So it seems like the real question is not whether or not serpents can talk, but rather whether or not God exists. Let's start with that question. And if we have time, maybe we can get to talking snakes later. Uh, second tool is, is an understanding of two different notions, refuting versus rebutting. In a refutation, you are proving that the other person's conclusion or claim is false. Uh, you're, so you're attacking the conclusion. And in a rebuttal, you are simply showing that the other person has not proven that their conclusion is true. In other words, you're attacking the justification for the conclusion. Um, here's an example. <clears throat> so suppose someone claims that it will rain today because I'm wearing brown shoes. Now, with the refutation, you're going to attack the conclusion. But note, in order to prove that it will not rain today, you will have to have knowledge about the temperature, the moisture, and the pressure in the atmosphere. But Notice that in conversations like these, you may not always have this information at your fingertips. And here's where a rebuttal comes in. With a rebuttal, rather than attack the conclusion, you're going to attack the person's justification. And you can say, well, no, not necessarily, because you wore brown shoes yesterday and it didn't rain. Now, let me ask you, which of these two is the easier to accomplish? Well, obviously, the rebuttal. And I would, with without going into, into details, I would argue that a lot of times a rebuttal is better than a refutation because with the refutation, you're basically telling the other person they're wrong and who knows if they'll believe you. With the rebuttal, you're pointing out how the person's thought process has not justified their belief. So it gives them pause to self-reflect and think, okay, if this isn't a good reason for believing what I do, then why do I believe it? And you are in a literal sense putting a, uh, um, pressing them and helping them adjust the strongholds that they're struggling with, or as Greg Coco says, you're putting a pebble in their shoe. So another one, and we'll, I'll, I'll give you an example of that later. Um, and actually, the, the examples I just gave with the young lady, that was me offering a rebuttal. I was just showing that she hasn't proven her belief that there's no God to be true. Now, another tactical tool would be neither a refutation nor rebuttal. This occurs when a person has not given an actual argument or objection, and thus neither a refutation nor a rebuttal is needed. Instead, they have merely made a declarative statement, an assertive, uh, asserted a claim, or just passionately expressed an emotion. Um, this can happen in a number of ways. 
But my point is, this is going to require you paying attention to what the person's saying and how they're wording their position. Um, one example is, uh, I, I did a, a, I was on an atheist radio show one time, and I was giving some arguments for why I'm not an atheist and why I think atheism is essentially not just wrong, but irrational and self-refuting and illogical. And after giving an argument, uh, his response was just to kind of laugh and say, well, that's just ridiculous. Now, I've heard his show before, and typically other Christians on his show would just jump the gun and start trying to reiterate the argument or start trying to come at at a different angle. But why? He hasn't given a response. He's just expressed his emotion or, or made a statement. And my response was, well, of course you disagree with me. That's why I'm, your, I'm on your show. Can you please tell me why? And there was silence for at least a good five to six seconds. And he says, well, it's just ridiculous. I said, show me which of the premises you disagree with. Where, where did I go wrong or, or what exactly is wrong with the argument? In other words, I'm not going to jump in and give a response because no objection or argument has been made. So it's important to pay attention. One more I'll give is I was talking with a young man one time and he said, I, I, one of my biggest problems, the reasons I can't believe in God, he said, is because there is so much evil in the world. And how can you believe in God, in a loving God, when there's so much evil? And I basically said, well, let me see if I understand you correctly. You're telling me that God can't exist because there's no because there's so much evil? He said, yes. I said, can you elaborate on that? He said, well, if God exists, he's all loving. I said, right. And if he's all loving, he wouldn't want evil. I said, why not? He said, well, because he's all loving. And I said, right. And someone all loving wouldn't want evil. I said, I still don't see why you just repeated yourself. And it kind of took him a while. And then he stopped and said, well, I think you know what I'm trying to say. I said, well, maybe I do, but I can't respond to something unless you articulate where the problem is. And I said, but, but let me help you here um, again by asking a question. Could I be a loving father and yet still take my children to the dentist, knowing that at the dentist they're going to experience pain and suffering? And he said, well, yeah, because it's for, it's for, it's, it's for a good reason. It's for a greater purpose, if you will. And I said, right, so if you can conceive of that with me as an earthly father, then how can you not conceive of that of God as a, as a heavenly father who would not only know the outcome, but know every possible situation, circumstance, and, and counterfactual, if you will. So again, up until this point, still haven't gotten into debates or arguments with people. I'm just either asking questions, clarifying, or paying attention to what they're saying to get at the heart of the issue. Again, this is how to answer, not what. So examples, one person once said Christians are hypocrites. I'm going to give you three different type of responses using the lazy approach from the laziest to the less lazy that would only require just a little bit more work. Someone would say Christians are hypocrites. My response is go on. And I pause as long as it takes. And I don't say another word. And it's really awkward. And it, you know, just let that marinate for a second. Christians are hypocrites. Go on. And you just kind of let it sit there. Now, of course, they're, they usually expect your average Christian to just jump in and start defending that. Again, why? This isn't an argument. This isn't an objection. It's a statement. So I want another relevance. Or you can say, sure, some are, but how would this prove there is no God? Again, I am keeping the main thing the main thing. I'm not even trying to argue against this point. I just want to know how does this relate to the main topic? And you can say, sure, and some atheists are hypocrites too. So what? What's your point? Again, I'm not providing a, a refutation. I'm not providing a rebuttal. I'm just clarifying what does this have to do with the discussion. Um, last one is identifying, identifying logical fallacies. How are we on time? What, what time is it at the moment? 
Good. What time is it? You're good. It's 7.35. You have about 10, 15 more minutes. You're great. Excellent. Okay. <clears throat> so a logical fallacy is an error in logic or reason. And again, Christ did this so beautifully. I wish I had time to go into that. And this is nothing against the, the show today. It's just I could talk for hours about anything. That's my wife. She sometimes doesn't always want to uh, listen. And she'll tell me, go, go, go talk to someone who, who can engage in this with you because she says it goes over her head sometimes. And I talk fast. So a log identifying logical fallacies, it goes hand in hand with previous tactical tools that we've already discussed. So here's a few examples. One example is a self-defeating claim. A lot of apologists here know what that is. So I'm sure you've heard people say things like there is no truth. Um, I had one lady said, Christianity can't be true because there is no truth. And my question and response is, well, is that true, right? Because if there is no truth, then what you just said can't be true. Yet it seems that you're saying this as if you believe it's true. But if there is no truth, how can what you said just, how can that be true? Um, I was one time, fun story. I was invited on this radio show once. <clears throat> it was a secular left-leaning radio show um, in Houston. And they contacted me and said, every month or so, we like to invite guests from the community to talk about their beliefs. And we want to show that we are open-minded to other perspectives that disagree with us. So would you mind coming on the show and talking about Christianity? And I said, I would love to. And they said, sure, what topic do you want to talk about? And I said, I want to talk about why I'm not an atheist. Um, so when I get there, I, I have like 10 pages of notes ready to go. And right before we walk in, the, the show host, who was an atheist, said, um, the radio technician rather said, now, just by the way, we do these because we also want people in the community to engage with the guests we have on. So would you be okay with people asking you questions if they call in? Uh, and then he said, you know, we don't always have callers. Last time we had a pastor on the show, we had one or two calls. But if people are interested or are challenged by what you say, they're going to want to call in. I said, sure, why not? So at the first commercial break, we were only about 10 minutes in to me talking. I was barely about to get to my second argument. And during the commercial, he looks at me and he looks at my notes and says, I, I know you, there's a lot more you want to go over, but all the phone lines are ringing. Would you like to take a question? And I said, sure, why not? First person calls in basically says, one of the first says, you can't tell people they're wrong. I said, what do you mean? And he says, well, I, I was okay with you talking about God, but then you started talking about Christianity. Are you telling me that everyone who's not a Christian is wrong? I said, yeah. And he said, well, you can't do that. You, you can't just tell uh, you can't tell everybody that's listening that if they're not Christians, they're wrong. Who are you to tell people they're wrong? And my response was, well, let me just ask you a question to clarify. Um, if it's wrong to tell people they're wrong, then why are you calling me on a live public radio to tell me that I'm wrong? If you think it's wrong to tell people that they're wrong. In other words, his he was essentially his actions were not consistent with his belief. It was self-defeating. Another person, uh, in, in, not in these exact words, but we've heard people say, well, you can't force your moral position on me, or you, you, we should tolerate everyone's beliefs. And my response, going with the same line of reasoning is, okay, well, then why are you forcing your morality on me, right? If, if you think we shouldn't enforce our morals on other people, then why are you enforcing that moral position onto me? What if I think I should force my moral beliefs onto other people? Again, it is self-defeating. Um, a category fallacy. Here's a common one, and there's a lot uh, to go into. I'm just going to share these two. So I oftentimes get from non-believers. They'll say, show me scientific evidence for God. 
And my response is typically always the same. My response is, why would I want to do a silly thing like that? And here's why. If God exists, he's non-physical. But see, science, while it is a wonderful tool for studying the physical world, it can only, it is limited to studying the physical. And if God exists, he is not physical. So to try and use science, a discipline like science, which can only study the physical, to investigate something that is non-physical would be what's called a category fallacy. It's the wrong tool for the assessment. It's kind of like using a metal detector to try and find plastic. Um, I've heard the story where um, I think it was, I forget, I think it was Ed Fazer who first used this analogy, but pretend your friend goes to the beach with a metal detector and an hour later he comes back and says, there is no plastic on the beach. I, I just went for an hour looking for some and I didn't find any. And you look behind his shoulder and you see that there's tons of litter on the beach, nothing but plastic. And you say, well, why would you think that? And he says, well, because I spent an hour on the beach with this metal detector and not once did I find plastic. And the irony, of course, is that his metal detector is made predominantly of plastic. But the problem is obviously that, well, sure, it's a metal detector, not a plastic detector. And you can't use a metal detector to try and find plastic. In the same way, the atheist who says there is no God because there is, quote, no scientific evidence is like saying there is no plastic because my metal detector cannot find any. It is simply a category fallacy. Um, now, there's a lot more to go into, but let me just share a few resources um, on my channel. There's a talk I gave uh, to a group in the Philippines over Zoom, and they asked me to specifically talk about logical fallacies and how Christians fall for them. Um, at the store, there's some resources you can download, a few articles. And coming up, uh, so as I mentioned earlier, part of my job is organizing uh, three conferences every year on apologetics and evangelism. And the one we have coming up actually is going to be in Crandall, Texas, not too far from the Dallas area. And you can register here at a, a Texas Apologetics. Uh, some of you may recognize the people on the screen aside from uh, the, the young Hispanic man to the right. Uh, Braxton Hunter and Jonathan Pritchett teach at uh, uh, Trinity College. Great guys. Uh, they host Trinity Radio. Michael Jones has a great YouTube channel called Inspiring Philosophy. These are great guys who have really done the homework in a lot of these areas, and it's going to be a great conference. Um, so again, here are some of the resources uh, that you can go to, and if you want to screenshot that or, or rewind and, and take a look at those, you're welcome to. So in summary, tools and tactics for answering. Um, I want to answer some of the questions that were submitted, but let's briefly go over the, the four tools and tactics. The first was using questions. We saw how Jesus did this. We saw how it can clarify a position or make a point. Um, there was also refuting versus rebutting. When you refute, you show why they're wrong and attack the conclusion, whereas with the rebuttal, you show why their justification has not proven they're right. So you don't attack the conclusion. You can actually concede it for the sake of argument, but show that their justification doesn't suffice to prove their conclusion. Um, sometimes people don't make an argument or an objection. They just make a statement. When that happens, you don't have to offer a rebuttal or a refutation. Uh, you just kind of need to help them unpack what the problem is. And again, oftentimes that alone suffices to show that either their claim or objection doesn't work. And then there's identifying logical fallacies, which would be a whole other discussion, but essentially it's, it focuses on the rebuttal aspect, and sometimes it can serve as a refutation where you're showing that either their claim is self-defeating or it's, it's making an error in logic, which means that you no longer have a reason to believe their conclusion is true. Um, so at this time, I don't know, um, I can go through some of the questions that were submitted online, or do you want to do the breakout rooms? 
We'll go ahead and do the breakout rooms first, and then okay. we'll come back and we'll do a Q&A and Eric will answer some of the questions that you submitted. Excellent. So let me go ahead and um, prepare you guys for the breakout room. So for the next five minutes, you're going to be broken out into small groups and you're going to answer one of these two questions, or you can answer both um, if, if there's two people in your room that want to answer one or the other. Um, so write this down or take a screenshot. How can an all loving God exist with so much evil in the world? Or why doesn't God just show up and prove all the atheists wrong? You have five minutes to discuss one or both of these questions using the tactile tools that you just learned. All right, welcome back everyone. I hope you had a good discussion in your small groups. I hope you were challenged. I know I was. I'm definitely going to be walking away with these tactile tools. Eric and I were just talking about the book Tactics. If you have not yet read the book Tactics that he referenced, highly recommend it. It is really good for exactly what Eric is talking about, how to ask questions in regards to questions someone asked you about your faith or something challenging. Eric, can you remind everyone who the author of Tactics is? Greg Kokel. Thank you. Yes, Greg Kokel. I was going to say, shameless plug, uh, January 22nd, uh, our, our, our first conference of next year is going to be in Jacksonville, Texas, and we will have Frank Turk and Greg Kokel at that conference. Oh, wonderful. Person. Okay. Yeah. All right. So now that everyone is back in the main session, Eric, go ahead and answer how you would answer these two questions that everyone discussed in their small group. Yeah, great. So yeah, and I'd love to, if we had time, I'd love to hear what other people had to say, but um, how can a loving God exist with so much evil in the world? Uh, lots of ways to go at this. Um, the first thing I would do, going referencing the, the tools we mentioned, was just ask them to explain what the issue is, because there's an underlying assumption that's not being said. It, it's kind of like saying, if grass is green, the sky shouldn't be blue. Doesn't make sense, and I want to know how did you get to that? How did you come to that conclusion? But in, in essence, depending on the, the the time I have with the person, I would aim to show. Again, it, it really does depend on how much time you have. But one things I'd like to point out that evil can only exist if God exists, and there's arguments for that. But in a nutshell, um, much like a lie is a deviation of truth, I would argue that evil is a deviation of good. So if lies exist, it presupposes the existence of truth. In the same way, if evil exists, it's a deviation of good. And goodness can only exist if there is an eternal transcendent grounding of morality, namely God. So I tell the person, so if evil exists, God has to exist. So before I answer your question, I want to know, are you still an atheist? Because if you're an atheist, you can't tell me there's evil. But if you're telling me there's evil, you're going to have to believe God exists. You know, pick one and we'll go from there. Um, so... Lots more that can be said, but that kind of gets back to the focus of the discussion. Um, <clears throat> the second one is one I hear all the time from non-believers that, well, if God doesn't exist, if God does exist, then he should just show up. The problem with this is there's always, as a preface, there are always underlying assumptions behind a question. And if you can answer the question behind the question, you can get at the problem much quicker. In this, the assumption is that God simply wants people to believe in him. But scripture itself teaches that belief is not enough to, to, to bring one to salvation. Hence, scripture says even the demons believe and tremble. So why doesn't God show up and prove all the atheists wrong? Well, one, why would he want to? Because it could be the case that by showing himself, the atheist is now forced to believe in God, which may bring about resentment and now even push the person further away from God. Moreover, I would argue that the fact that God does not reveal himself in a strong way to everyone is actually a sign of God's grace. And briefly, here's why. 
I, I would say that the amount of revelation you're given incurs the person with more responsibility. Basically, knowledge brings about responsibility. So the more knowledge you have, the more responsible you are for what God has called you to do, or the more responsible you are for your condemnation. And this is why I think God sometimes does hide himself. It's a sign of his grace. Because if God knows that you would reject him if he gave you more revelation, then more revelation would only add to your condemnation. So God is actually being merciful in not revealing himself to everyone in, in certain miraculous ways. So again, lots more that could be said, but note I am, I am addressing the underlying question behind the question and getting at the root of the issue in order to kind of address these, especially in, in, in a limited time frame. Um, so some questions that came about through online. Uh, one was, is it biblical to deny someone the right of choice? My question would be choice for what? Um, I'm not, I'm not anti-choice. And, and I'm assuming the person here is uh, alluding to abortion. I am 100% for a woman to choose what car she wants, to choose what job she wants to get, to choose where she wants to eat, even though my wife says, I don't know most of the time, but I am for a woman choosing a lot of things. But the question is choice for what? If the choice is to kill their children, well, then no, I'm, I'm against that choice. And absolutely, that is biblical uh, uh, to that we shouldn't allow people to kill their children. Uh, how do we reconcile different versions of God's word to the apostles on the Mount Transfiguration? Um, I would wonder what the person means by reconciled. Another implementation of some of these tactics was look for the key words in the question. And here it would be reconciled, which assumes something needs to be reconciled. There can be different variations of a story, but the heart of the story is still there. Without going into detail, this is how the gospel authors and people of antiquity wrote history. They weren't trying to get a tape recorder verbatim of what was being said. They're trying to convey a specific message using what was being said. Um, why do Christians seemingly unjustly suffer disease and die young instead of being healed and living? The assumption in this question is perhaps that Christians should not die young, nor should they be sick. Again, this is not something you find in scripture. And I would say it's not just Christians that die young from diseases. Other people do as well. Um, also, it's important a lot of times without, without going onto a rant or venting, sometimes there, there are people are raised with false theological assumptions or beliefs. And the assumption here is typically Typically, I'm God's pet, and it's his job to make me happy, to make it clear that it's not God's job. God is not as concerned with your comfort as he is with your character. And oftentimes, God will allow these things to come into your life because of your character. Um, so it, it's not as if it's God's job to, you know, to make give us our best life now, if you will. In, in fact, I, I would even go as far as to say we have to also keep in mind that this is not the only life. Um, if there is an afterlife, and if Christianity is true, then this life is, in a large sense, a preparation for the next life. And Paul says, I love what Paul said, the, that the momentary afflictions of this life compare nothing to the weight of glory of the next life. To put it into perspective, can you remember your worst day in elementary school? And whether you can or not, you know, you may think maybe the worst day was when I wore the wrong shoes or one time I accidentally put on uh, the wrong. I put on two different pairs of shoes from two different uh, from two different pairs. And, you know, it looked silly. And that was I was so embarrassed. I felt like my life was over. You know, it was like second grade. I look back on that and think, wow, that was such a silly concern of mine. But 
because of how long I live, you know, 34 years versus, you know, six or seven hours in school, it really doesn't compare. Now, think of eternity. If we can think of eternity in terms of inches, let's say my life right now is 34 inches. How long is eternity? Well, you go a mile, still not there. Go another mile, go 100,000 miles. Now, compare this life in comparison to your entire existence in eternity. It will literally not compare to, again, the weight of glory that we'll have in eternity. Uh, someone said, I believe Jesus rose from the dead, but the inspiration of scripture, I struggle with a justification. Um, I, I think this is, before you throw rocks at me and, and call me a heretic, I think sometimes there's too much emphasis put on trying to reconcile every Bible objection. And, and let me say a few things. One, God existed prior to scripture being written. Uh, two, people existed prior to scripture and believed and followed God. Uh, some would argue that the book of Job is the first book of the Bible written. Well, what, what verse did Job have to have to go to when he was struggling? What Psalms did he quote? Well, none, because there were none. And yet he had a flourishing relationship with God. I, I would also say that if Christ rose from the dead, all bets are off. Christianity's true. I mean, that, that, that's it. There's no, everything else is a secondary issue when it comes to salvation or whether or not Christianity is true. So if Christ rose from the dead and we have reasons to believe that, well, then nothing, there's no argument or objection that could ever change that fact. Uh, another question is, how do you learn to recognize the type of question being asked in order to formulate an adequate response? This sounds similar to something someone asked in the chat. Um, basically, you really want to pay attention to what the person is saying, because no, listening is half the battle, if not more, to knowing how to ask a good question. There's a lot I left out, but I often pay very close attention to what the person's saying, allow them to do most of the talking, and then piece together what they said to, to ask a, a question that really gets at the heart of what's going on. Uh, someone asked about the problem of evil. We, we already address, addressed it. Um, I've often said there is a problem of evil, but it's a problem for atheism, not for Christianity. Someone asked, will my puppy Charlie be in heaven with me mm -hmm. when I die? I don't know. Um, animals do have souls, but souls do not equate to immortality. You can go on my channel. I have a lot of stuff on the soul. That's, that's the area that I focus on most. But animals do have souls, but it doesn't mean that they'll automatically be in heaven. We, are, we bear the image of God, and because of that, I think that is what makes our souls immortal because God would not destroy something that bears his image. Animals do not. So I leave that up to God to see what he does. I do think there will be animals in heaven. Scripture seems to teach that. But whether or not those will be the same animals that we had here on earth, I, I couldn't say. Another question, did Jesus have free will? Yes. Uh, moving on. <laughs> There's a lot I could say there. I would have to know what the person is really trying to ask. Uh, but yes, he did have free will. How would a believer respond if they found out that God or Jesus was not real and the Bible was not true? Uh, well, the better way to frame the question is how should a believer respond if God didn't exist and Jesus didn't exist? They should give up Christianity, quite simply. Um, and if that bothers you, I refer you to 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul said, if Christ did not rise from the dead, our hope is in vain. So Paul is essentially saying, if there is no resurrection, Christianity is false, in his own words. And he, and he goes as far as to say, people should actually feel sorry for us if there's no resurrection. So yeah. If there's no God and Jesus didn't exist, give up Christianity. We're wasting our time, quite frankly. But this, this brings up a deeper point. C.S. Lewis said something like, Christianity is either the most important thing you can devote your life to, 
or it's not important at all. But the one thing it cannot be is moderately important. You know, it's either it, you either believe it and devote your life to it, or you don't worry about it because it doesn't matter. But it definitely can't be in the middle. Um, how do you approach your own doubts or doubts of others biblically, apologetically, and in an encouraging way? A lot of times, it, using the same tactics, let, let's start with dealing with someone else. A lot of times, I try to help them work through where is the doubt coming from? What is the point of doubt? Like if someone, you know, says something about scripture, we kind of cover that evil, we kind of cover that. But again, it's it, one, one good thing to ask, especially when it comes to myself, is, is my doubt an emotional doubt or an intellectual doubt? And there is a big difference. With an intellectual doubt, I can actually write out the doubt in an argument, in, an, in a syllogistic format, in an argument format, and I can actually write out what my doubt is as an objection. If I can't do that, chances are my objection or doubt is more emotional and not intellectual. Interestingly, studies show that most of these kind of doubts happen at night when your mind's tired, your body is tired, and, and you're kind of more vulnerable. Um, so one thing I'd say is take a nap and, and double check this doubt in the morning and see how you feel. And ask yourself, is this intellectual or emotional? Because if it's intellectual, there's lots of ways to go about uh, uh, looking for the answer. Emotional. Well, then there, there, there's a whole different ballgame where some prayer, uh, some counseling perhaps is needed, maybe talking with your pastor, uh, uh, but there's definitely ways to handle that. So the first thing is, is my doubt intellectual or emotional? Um, someone said, I have a friend who was going through a lot. When I check up on them, they usually tell me something like, does God even care that the bad guy wins? Why doesn't God stop them? It's very sad. How do we encourage others to keep the faith when it seems as if the world is against them? Um, well, I, I would say, yes, God cares if the bad guy wins. And again, kind of going back to what I said earlier, help your friend figure out what the objection is. Um, questions are not always objections. Does God care the bad guy wins? Yes. Why doesn't God stop them? Well, a few, lots of things to say. You can go to free will or uh, things of that nature. But again, we have to keep in mind the big picture. This goes back to what I was saying about the afterlife. Will God eventually do away with evil? Yes. Does that mean God will do away with evil today? No. So we have to keep this in mind. Um, and, and why won't God just stop them? Well, if he gave us free will, that again, to briefly touch on that, then he, I can put it this way. The same fire that warms you is the same fire that can also burn you. And the same water that's a substance that can uh, uh, nourish you can also drown you. So if we have free will, then we have tools at our disposal, and God has not only given us the freedom to choose him and choose good, but has simultaneously given us the freedom to reject him and choose evil. God will eventually do away with evil, but that doesn't mean today. And if God is all-knowing and knows all, then I take comfort at night, knowing that one, he's still in control. Uh, two, knowing that whatever comes into my life, he has allowed it when he could have stopped it. So if he didn't stop it, then he knows something I don't. And again, it's not his job to make me happy. Um, it, it, it's our job to trust God. And that may sound like a Christian cliche answer. I can give you a much longer articulate answer, which would take more time. But suffice it to say, if God is who he says he is, then I have strong reasons to trust his, his, what he allows and what he doesn't. Um, some of the last questions that came in, uh, biblical inerrancy in light of historical issues with the Old Testament. Um, I would say that there's, uh, you'd have to give me a specific example, but as I've seen it, and I've heard J.P. Moreland share this, 
anytime there's been objections from anything historical, I have found that after, you know, give, give it a few more years. And typically it turns out, Oh, the Bible is right all along. Uh, you find this with the book of Daniel, you find this with a few other instances where initially it was thought, well, this person wasn't reigning at this time only to later discover, Oh, it turns out. Yes. This person wasn't reigning at the time, but at the time this King was on some type of sabbatical and he had the second in charge come and step in. So he was the one in charge at the time, even if not reigning. Lots of little things like that. Uh, we did cover relativism, free will issues. Someone said, I, again, I would maybe need to know what, what exactly the person's asking. Um, but if you don't believe in free will, I'd be curious to know if you freely came to not believe in free will. Uh, child abuse, that kind of goes back to what we're talking about, evil. Why didn't God just strike them dead? Uh, a, a few things. It, it's not God's job to do these things. Let, let me make that clear. If I were to give my son, even though he's four, when he gets older, if I gave my son the keys to a car and if he wrecked it, it's not my responsibility that he wrecked it. He now has to deal with the broken AC in the car. God gave us the keys to this world. He created Adam and Eve and said, you have, you have dominion. Um, what people fail to realize is that it is not God's job to take care of this world. It is our job. We have dominion. So I often say when there's so much evil in the world, we have to look no further than the mirror in front of us. Um, Last one was Bart Ehrman says the Bible is full of changes and errors. Um, don't listen to Bart Ehrman in those respects. Uh, he, yes, he does say that, but he's unfortunately, and I hate to say this, he's he's disingenuous uh, in many instances. For those who don't know, Ehrman is an agnostic New Testament scholar. And I'll say this. I, I've talked to people who have actually debated Ehrman. Uh, Mike Lincona, who's one of the world's leading experts on the resurrection, and Dan Wallace, who is one of the world's leading scholars on Greek uh, and, and manuscripts. In fact, if you own a Bible, chances are Dan Wallace helped translate that into English. Like, that's how big this guy is. And I'm kind of name dropping here, admittedly. You can pray for my pride mm -hmm. later. Uh, but I, one thing that Dan Wallace pointed out in a debate with, with Bart Ehrman was, look, when you're, when you're in front of students and people who aren't trained in this area, you say this. But when you're in front of scholars, you say something different. What, what gives? And here's basically the problem. <clears throat> um, you may hear something like, oh, in the New Testament, there's only, and I'm making the number up because I can't remember. Let's say there, I'm just going to use a random number. There's 5,000 words in the New Testament, but there are 15 or 20,000 variations or discrepancies. Now, the word discrepancy does not mean an error or, or something is wrong. A discrepancy means it's, it's, a, it's a different usage of words. In Greek, there are like over 100 ways to say John loves Mary. You know, and same thing with English. John loves Mary. Mary is loved by John. Uh, Mary is the beloved of John. John has strong feelings. For, there's lots of ways to say it. So when you have different manuscripts that have a different way of saying something, it is not an error. It is not a change. It is not something wrong. It is a discrepancy. And this, but we have over, what is it, six or 60,000? We have a lot of manuscripts we can go back and look at and see, yeah, nothing's been changed. They may have worded it differently. And some of these are spelling mistakes. Uh, uh, even Bart will say that. But if you were to talk to Bart Ehrman, you could ask him this, which one of these alleged changes uh, uh, do anything to invalidate or discredit or change an important Christian doctrine. And Bart himself will tell you, oh, it doesn't change anything. So yes, he's going to tell you 
yeah, there's so many different variations. And you say, okay, what does that mean? Nothing really. It, it, it's really just used as a shock value. Um, so, so yeah, he, nothing is, he, he's, he's doing what every other scholar knows, but he's trying to implicitly make a point that someone who, who's not familiar with these would make a point that he's, he knows is not true, but he lets the people think that and run with it because it sells books. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you, Eric. That was absolutely excellent. I know some of you had more questions that we didn't get to tonight. You saw all of Eric's information, how to connect with him personally. He has lots of YouTube videos. I've even watched some myself, so I encourage you to check out his YouTube channel. Um, if you're in the Texas area, come to the Unapologetic Evangelism Conference. You can see Eric there, um, as well as hear from other apologists. Now, if you enjoyed this training, we have another one coming up in two weeks. This is how to share the gospel with friends and family. So if this topic interests you, you can go on over to our website again, internationalcommission.org to register. Again, that is two weeks from tonight with Pastor Jason Snyder. Um, again, I'm sorry if we didn't get to all of your questions, but you can contact Eric. And he does have some free resources that we are giving away to... JT Martin. So congratulations, JT Martin. Eric was so gracious in giving us a promo code so you can have some of his resources that he mentioned tonight. So congratulations. Thank you everyone for staying on, on with us a little longer than um, past the hour, but I hope you found this training encouraging and that you wrote down those four tactile tools and that you enjoyed the time in the breakout rooms to practice those. So before we close out, you have been equipped and enabled in how to answer hard questions. And let me close this out in prayer. God, thank you for this evening and for Eric and everything that you've done to equip and enable him to share with us tonight. Thank you for the knowledge that he shared and all the training he's received. And God, I pray that we would remember what we learned, put it into practice. And of course, always with gentleness and respect, know how to answer anyone who asks us for the hope that we have in you. Thank you again for this time. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.